Well, hello, hello, hello. My name is Natalie Francis Clark. Once again, thank you for joining to our monthly Pause Reset Brunch podcast. Today we have Paige Hughes. And I'll just tell you a little bit about Paige. Um, she's 33 years old. She is a wife, a mother of three. She's a New Orleans native and a Hurricane Katrina survivor. She is an educator with over 10 years experience in the Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. She's also a graduate of UNC Charlotte, where she holds a bachelor's in elementary education and her master's in STEM education. Her passion includes Title I schools, grant writing, and of course, STEM. I also want to congratulate Paige on obtaining her graduation certification in school administration literally just days ago on May 12th. So let's welcome Paige Hughes. Hey, Paige. Hey, thank you so much for the warm welcome and the congratulations. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So something I like to ask my guests um, before we even get into things, are you eating or drinking anything at the moment? No, I'm not eating or drinking anything at the moment. No. Okay. I myself, I'm just doing some sparkling water. I just had a big, um, a big lunch. So, all right. So um, in your bio, you have a quote, right? And the quote states, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Right. I can't help but to say, wow, when I, when I saw that African proverb, what does that quote mean to you? That quote means so much to me. Um, just hailing from New Orleans, Louisiana, um, I know that, you know, in the news, you hear all these um, mass murderings and shootings in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I think what I think of most when I think of that quote is that, you know, black and brown people in New Orleans, like, um, they usually aren't the ones who are educated. And so because whenever you're not educated, you usually turn to, you know, things that are undesirable in the community. And usually students drop out of school when they don't feel the warmth of the school community. And so then they turn to the street and they are trying to hustle and get by. And so I just think that um, going back, looking at New Orleans, where I'm from, like the our school system, I must admit, was kind of crappy when I was going through it. And so then in turn, we had a huge dropout rate and a lot of um, kids went to the streets and hustling, doing things that aren't desirable. And so I think that the center of everything is schooling. Whenever we are schooled appropriately and we feel warm from our the warmth from our school community and it keeps us close and keeps us in school, then we don't go in, out into our community and burn it down and terrorize our community just to feel that warmth. So um, I think about that a lot. Um, when I compare New Orleans to Charlotte, you don't see as many um, shootings and uh, high pockets of crime and violence because I think Charlotte um, does a really good job of keeping our students warm inside of the school so that they're not coming out into the community terrorizing it. So um, in my school, I'm really big about and bringing the community into the school. Um, I'm always looking for a partnership, always asking the community, can you come in and volunteer? I want our kids to see that the community cares about them. They're cheering for, for them. They're rallying behind them so that they are not inclined to go and tear up their community because they know, oh, that's so-and-so's grandmother or that's so-and-so's mother or friend. I'm not going to rob them or do something that I'm not supposed to because I saw this person in my school caring about me. 
So um, that's what that quote means to me. And that's why partnerships and communities are so important at the school level so that our kids know that we rally around them and we love them so much. And we and then they're not inclined to, you know, turn to crime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, um, well, you, you hear so many things about, um, you know, teachers in, in North Carolina, them not receiving enough pay and, you know, just different things like that. But as far as regarding pay and resources in uh, North Carolina, specifically Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, what can you express partnerships? What can um, we do in regards to partnerships? What exactly are you looking for to help improve the system, especially with Title I schools? And, and also, can you explain um, what Title I schools are? So first, I'll explain that Title I school is a school that um, is economically disadvantaged. So that means we have high levels of poverty, high uh, low levels of socioeconomic um, disadvantages. So we're having more free and reduced lunch um, status. Paige, I think you pressed mute. I'm sorry, so that the school will get resources from the federal government to supplement um, what the families cannot contribute. So um, that's what a Title I school is. We have more impoverished students that we're serving. Um, so from the community standpoint, um, I think the community can do a lot of things to, to partner with schools. Um, I would say first is donating time. Time, I know, is super precious and valuable, but just coming into a school, getting yourself cleared to be a registered volunteer, eating lunch with a child, um, I would say coming into the classrooms to help the teachers, put the library together, donating books to, to the school um, that your kids aren't using anymore, coming and asking teachers, hey, can I pull up, put up a bulletin board just so the kids can see people in the community rallying around their school. Um, I know my school has a partnership with um, Cato, CPCC, the community college. And so we're right behind that school. And so a lot of times the students during their breaks, they'll walk over to our school and they'll help students uh, read uh, passages, read books. They'll help the kids play math games. And so that makes all the difference. It doesn't have to always be money. Sometimes it's resources and time. Okay. Now you yeah. you mentioned eating lunch. What what's the impact of someone coming in and volunteering eating lunch with a child? I think that impact of coming in to eat lunch with a child is just it means the world to them. Um, if you think back to when you're in school and when your parent came to sit next to you to eat lunch, it made your whole day. It made your whole week just just you, you just light up and you're beaming inside like someone cared mm -hmm. enough about me to just come sit next to me and talk to me. A lot of our students, they are missing that connection at mealtime because we have families that are um, where mom and dad or, or whoever's caring for the child, they're working more than one job. They're working two and three jobs. So a meal is a hot pocket or, you know, noodles. And it's not that rich conversation at the dinner table about what was the peak of your day? What was the pitfall of your day? It's just quickly eat this so you can be fed and go to bed. And I think a lot of our kids miss that rich dinner table discussions and if they can't get that at home why can't a community member come in during their lunch break and just talk to kids what's your favorite cartoon oh you know what did you do this weekend or how's it going that really helps their social emotional health as well it means a lot to kids it really does oh, okay um that's something to definitely think about so we talked about the community as a whole uh, what about the government 
what what can, can the government do? Yeah, how can they step up a little bit more, or or do you think they should? I mean, I mean, if if there's a way that we can definitely pay educators more, um, <laughs> that would be the way just to make sure that we're getting paid education whenever we go into it we always say it's a work of heart and we're not going in it to be rich but that shouldn't be the tagline when you go into education so Mm -hmm. if the government is out there listening please pay teachers more because you know we go to school for four years just like any other um discipline area and Mm -hmm. we work like when we're, we're on the field the front lines with children each and every day and we're producing your next president your next your next doctors your next neurosurgeon whoever your next scientist and I believe because we're laying that strong foundation, we should get paid like professionals. And at this point, we're not. Mm -hmm. Which I strongly agree, because as you say, you are pretty much educating the future. So the future is literally in the hands of of our educators. Yes. And because of the lack of lack of respect that educators receive they're they're leaving the profession in droves so you know it's Mm kind of sad it's a mass exodus of quality um, educators who are passionate about nurturing and growing and teaching children but they can't stay in the profession because it does not pay enough to where they're able to you know have a you know a decent life and provide for their families and it's so sad that Mm -hmm they're forced into an area where they're just there for the check and they're not there really to hone in on their passion and what they were maybe called to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So true. Now, um, when did you know that education, that was your, that was your career path? I think (laughs) this is funny. I I think I've known since I was three years old that I was going to be a teacher um, or being in the education field. And wow. yes, I know people were like, you've known since you were three. Yes, I've known since I was three. My mom was a principal and um, she was also a teacher. She was a special education teacher. And I remember like um, the earliest I can remember back because to about two and a half, three. And mm-hmm. I remember going to school with my mom and I just was like, wow, I want this. Like, I just was in love with the fact that she got to, uh, when she, when she was a teacher, she had her own classroom. And I just immediately thought it was just like this most magical place in the world. She taught, um, a special ed class that was more preschool based. It was ages three through seven. And she had all kinds of, um, manipulatives and dramatic play. Her classroom was kind of like Disney where I had slides and the kitchen area. And I was like, wow, I want to be a teacher one day. And then um, I think when I was around seven, she became a principal. And I, were, I remember going to her school after school and I would play on her intercom system. I would write little sweet notes in her, her teacher's mailboxes, like have a great day. And my mom was always working, always working on her typewriter, pecking away. And I was just like, well, if my mom doesn't want to leave this place and she's always at this place that she goes to work and she loves it. And she's on her typewriter when she comes home at night working on this, then I want to do this too. And I just felt like my mom was just the most important person in the world because of the work Mm -hmm. that she did, because she loved it. And also whenever we would go into the community, uh, we lived in a tight-knit community in New Orleans called Gentilly. It was a section of New Orleans. And um, whenever she, she went somewhere, they always knew her. And they would always call her by name. They were always giving her things. And 
she, whenever she went somewhere, she wasn't a stranger. She was like the local celebrity. And I was like, wow, I, I want that status. Mm-hmm. And um, I just always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. I, I said to myself, you know, I'm never going to be a principal. I never want to go into leadership because my mom, um, honestly, she worked so hard. I remember this is in 1998, I was eight years old. She had a mild heart attack when I was in second grade because she was stressed out, just always working. And um, I was like, I want to be a teacher, but I don't want to be a principal because I'm going to have a heart attack. And so I told myself, I say, I'm never going to go into leadership in a school. And mm-hmm. here I am two days ago, graduated with a master's certificate in, in school administration. So never say never, but the passion has been burning since age three and I'm 33 years old Dang. and I don't regret anything about my decision. No, you have a 30 year passion, 30 year passion, <laughs> 30 year passion. So um, what made you get into STEM? Honestly, I got into STEM on accident. <laughs> I oh. have a funny story about how I got into STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, I was employed at an elementary school. Um, there's different types of schools in, you know, Charlotte, Charlotte McMurray schools, different regions throughout the United States. And um, I was employed at a traditional school. And the traditional school is a school of about 800 students. And we were um, located right next door to another school. And we actually were adjacent by a hallway, but we operated as two separate schools. And that separate school was a STEM school. And that was where the cream of the crop students went. It was very elite. You had to join a lottery to get into that school. And to my understanding, only the best of the best teachers taught there. And so um, there was a decision, I want to say 2016, 2017, that the schools were to merge into one. And so it was this equity focused decision to have the whole, both of the schools come to be one and the whole school would be a STEM school from pre-K to eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And so um, with that, the merging, it just, you know, you're putting two different staffs together from the traditional school, the STEM school, um, it was, you know, it was something that we had to work through. And so I remember <laughs> meeting the, one of the parents from the other school because it was the beginning and the parent, he looked me up and down and he said to me, are you an elite teacher? And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, are you elite? Like, you know, he was looking at me like I was nothing because I was from the traditional school. I wasn't from the STEM school. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm i an elite teacher. He was like, no, do you teach and grow excellence? And I was like, well, yes, my data, you know, from my student data proves that. But he just looked at me with disgust. And so I was like, I never want to feel so small again. I never want these parents of this STEM school Um, to feel like I'm not good enough to teach their kids. So um, with my insecurity, I I had to do something about it. And just so happened, there was a a reduced tuition program that UNC Charlotte was piloting. And so reduced tuition meant that that I would only pay for like 20% of the master's degree and then a grant will fund the rest of it. And you had a choice to get a master's in STEM education or a master's in literacy. And I said that I wanted to be a part of this program and I was going to do the STEM part. And so I started that journey that August, 2018. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought me into STEM because I never wanted to not be an elite teacher. And Mm -hmm. I was 26 years old. And I think that that was the best decision 
that I could have ever made, which was to learn more about STEM and STEAM, um, because it opened up a new world that I didn't know existed. Because Mm -hmm. to me, when you say STEM and STEAM, I automatically have my wall up because I'm like, I'm not smart enough for that. Or Mm -hmm. you have to be into science. And it's all these misconceptions about STEM and STEAM that it's like a gatekeeper because people get intimidated by the letters S-T-E-M. And when you Mm -hmm. throw an A in there, you're like, what? Then, you know, the A stands for arts. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think what I learned the most was that STEM is for everyone. STEM is for any person. It does not matter your color. It does not matter your gender, your background. Anyone could STEM it up, steam it up. And that's what I learned. And so then once, you know, going through these classes and completing my my coursework for the master's degree in STEM education, Mm -hmm. I learned that my passion is not only education, but it's to deal out STEM and STEAM to Black children, you know, because they are underrepresented in STEM and STEAM careers. Um, Brown children, because Hispanic, um, Latinx um, students, they are underrepresented in STEAM and STEM careers. And in those course um, work classes, um, AP, in those higher level classes for high school, college level, underrepresented. And also I wanted to deal out STEM for women because we are underrepresented in the world of STEM and STEAM. And so in 2018, I got this whole renewed focus on making sure that they see us. And when I say us, I say um, female of color in the STEM and STEAM positions and the STEM in the STEM and STEAM world. And um, though each of those letters, they mean something different to me now. You don't mm-hmm. have to have a 4.0 in chemistry and like science like is so much more than just the higher level chemistry and the mixing different you know uh potions together science is all around us it's the world that we live in right mm-hmm. and technology you don't have to know how to code and i'm not the best coder and i don't know the most about re- robotics but you know that t and technology that also can stand for tinkering whenever you have technology technology could be a tool that you create it can be an apparatus that you create that's a technology right and then engineering everyone is an engineer you know it's how we we, we make things um it's been a, it's been a, an inventor it's being a, a um an innovator you know and mathematician you know a lot of our kids they're shied away from mathematics because they're afraid of that failure but we learn so much in failure and then the arts like that creativity piece is so important whenever we're talking about um steam that everything is art it just depends on the way that you look at it so I think that um, even though I got into STEM and STEAM by accident, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to mm-hmm. me because I have this really strong partnership with DigiBridge. It's a lo- it's a nonprofit here in Charlotte where we're able to um, stay after school for um, an hour and 45 minutes once a week with students. And we have a STEAM lab and the kids get to tinker after school. They get to create things. They get to do challenge-based problems and just really learn about topics that they typically wouldn't learn about in the classroom because of the state standards and the guidelines and the things that you have to follow to a T. Um, last, um, last month before my club wrapped up, our kids were learning about uh, what were they learning about? They were learning about 
like the force and emotion and they and they built like this this line and they they had they made balloon rockets on it then they were estimating why the balloon why um this size balloon went further than the other size balloon and because of the demands of a test and marking the the correct answer on a b c d you don't have time to build a balloon rocket in your classroom Right. But after school, our kids had balloon rockets and balloons were flying all around the classroom. They were timing it and measuring it. And that's what we need our kids doing more of hands on STEAM and STEM activities so they can see themselves as that scientist, a technologist, you know, an engineer, an artist, a mathematician. They need to see themselves in it by doing it and touching it hands on. Wow. I'm sorry. That was a lot. Oh, no, no. I, I see. I, I hear the passion. I love it. I'm just curious um, for your, your, your kids. I'm not sure how old they are, but do they share that passion for STEM as well? Or My kids are they're eight, seven, and two. My mm-hmm. eight-year-old is in third grade, and um, she is more of a struggling reader. Um, but she has grown so much this year, you mm-hmm. know, and now she is a reader. I could take the struggling part off for her. And mm-hmm. before, you know, and even now math was more of her strength because she doesn't like to read because she's like, oh, reading's hard. I don't get this phonic stuff. And so she does really well with mathematics and using her hands and just being that creative problem solver. Right. And then my my seven year old, he's naturally gifted. I was gifted in school. My husband was gifted in school. We were in the AIG classes and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. My seven year old is naturally gifted. And so he's all about that. He's all about STEM and STEAM and just just all the things he loves reading and the coding. And that's I can I know for a fact my son is going to go into a STEAM and STEM career whenever he grows up. My daughter, my eight year old, I'm not certain of. But um, the baby, the two-year-old, we buy a lot of blocks and, and building and puzzles and let her tinker a lot um, mm-hmm. just to see, you know, what comes out naturally with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. But now yeah. with, with, you know, we hear about the banning of books that's been around forever. Right. Do you think, you know, with, with things like this, I mean, books that we've been in school forever and ever, amen, do you ever see this as a... um? as an danger to, to stem eventually what banning like, of books like like the way how they're banning books do you think that this is a, a way to open up that they could ban how other um subjects in school in school is done do you see that um anyway in the future that if they continue down this path banning um you know just the start of literature will they go further and ban other things I hope that it doesn't go further than mm-hmm. ban- banning of literature and even some of the books that we're banning, like it makes me sick to a certain extent because like growing up, like I remember like we started reading novels in like seventh grade when I grew up in Louisiana and I learned some of the greatest lessons from the literature, literary pieces we, we read. We read Great Expectations by um, Charles Dickens and all these poems and, you know, just being exposed to this wide variety makes you unique and um, it gives you some depth and it widens, it widens your um, horizon and broadens it. Um, I, I hope that legislation legislation does not continue with the banning of books because we're watering down possibilities for children and that's not what's good for children. I think that we should expose children to an array of different topics and things that are 
um, less extreme and extreme and then have them um, examine different viewpoints Mm -hmm. and then let them make the best decisions for themselves. Because if we water down everything so much and only um, give them just a little bit, are we really setting them up for success? Like, I don't think Mm so. Um, I hope that the banning of books is just like a trend or a fad and it goes away because it's not right. I think that children mm-hmm. should be able to go into a library and pick up whatever um, title, you know, appeals them. And if they read the first chapter and say, you know what, this is a little bit too deep for me, they mm-hmm. have the right to go put it down and put it back on the shelf. You know, um, mm-hmm. I don't think a book is going to make someone racist or, or, or you know, something like that. I think that the books are there to teach you something and that you can have these rich discussions and explain why you agree with those thoughts or ideologies or why you disagree with them. And just, I think the talking part is where you learn to expand your thinking the most. I hope we stop banning books because I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just limits us so much as as people. It makes you just like one-sided. You can never look at the other side. You can never explore over there or understand like why that isn't good. So we don't repeat negative things from history. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it better not trickle down in the steam and stem. <laughs> I want our <laughs> kids to, you know, have, have, you know, just this wealth of, of things just to tinker with and we shouldn't be watering stuff down. No, mm-hmm. I hope that's not too political, but no, you know, not at all. You know. Dang. Um, one of the questions I also have for you, what are some of the misconceptions you hear about Title I schools? Oh, wow. Title I schools are my passion. Um, I've only taught in Title I schools, been employed with Title I schools, and I love it. Um, the misconceptions are all the kids are poor, so they can't learn, and lots of can'ts, and it's we're always struggling. And I think that that's the biggest misconception. I'm here to tell you that's not the truth, um, just because, you, you know, Someone may have a lower lower socioeconomic background does not mean that they can't and you shouldn't limit their potential. I think Mm -hmm. that's even more reason to raise the bar for them and to push them a little further, a little bit harder, because sometimes they can break generational curse. They can be the first to go and finish high school, the first to go to get a two year degree or an HVAC certification because you don't have to go to school for two years. You can go and get a STEM career um, from CPCC or any local community colleges um, in your area and get a, a nine month program, you know, and get a trade under you or go to a four year. So I think the misconception for Title I schools is the kids can't and it, people try to limit them. But mm-hmm. really, I think it's magical because I think that um, sometimes in certain communities, when you lack certain things, those kids are more um, inept to be innovative and they think outside the box. Like the way that they think, it amazes me sometimes how they're able to problem solve because sometimes in certain communities, you have to make you know something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in Title I schools, you have some of your smartest students because they're hidden gems and it's untapped potential. And sometimes you got to shine that, you know, that diamond up a little bit to make it shine the way you want to. And it might be a little bit rough around the edges sometimes, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, we still have kids operating at a high level, getting level fours and fives on their EOGs. We still have kids who are reading. Everything is not always a struggle. Um, 
sometimes it's just that misconception that keeps people out of the school to come volunteer. Um, and it also keeps them from placing their kids here and they want to go to charter schools and stuff. My best advice would be for anyone to come in, volunteer into um, Title I schools and go for a tour. So that you can see for yourself, um, someone once told me that you don't let anyone else tell your story. You tell it for yourself. And mm -hmm. so when people try to talk to me about my schools and the, the, the schools I choose to be employed at, and why do you want to be there? The kids are this and the kids are that. I said, let me stop you right there. Come volunteer at my school. Mm -hmm. Come walk my buildings. You don't, you're not going to see kids running down the hall screaming, throwing chairs, cussing teachers out, nothing like that. You're going to walk into a classroom. You're going to see all eyes on the teacher. You're going to see teachers loving on the kids, hugging on them, because that might be the only hug they get that day. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter where you're living and what your socioeconomic background is. Some kids don't get that love at home. And I think that our teachers here are special because they they come from this um, this mindset of I have to do a little bit more loving. So you'll see a lot more loving and hugging in um, Title One schools. But I think Title One schools are great. And I um, I actually have my kids attend the school that I I work at, and that means a lot to me mm -hmm. because if it's not good enough for my kids, then why am I here? Mm. Why am mm. I here? Why do I drive 25 minutes to come pour into this community yeah. and pour into this well that my kids can't drink from? If the well is unwell and I'm here and my kids can't drink from it, then I don't need to be here. And that's period and point blank. And I, I stand firm on that. Yes. I just had to give you a clap for that statement. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you spend the day surrounded by children and then... Sure. Now you go home, you know, to your beautiful um, children. How do you transition from educator to mommy? I think that's the hardest part for me because my kids attend school with me. We ride mm -hmm. in the morning. I pick them up. Like I wake them up in the morning. I'm getting them dressed. I'm like, we got to be out the door in four minutes. We're three <laughs> minutes late. You know, we're running out the door. Um, and every morning is chaos, it's complete chaos. We we still have not gotten it down and, and we're into year <laughs> four, five, whatever. And it's just chaos in the morning. And then like we're rushing out the car so I can go clock in. And then it's just like, guys, go to breakfast. I'm at work, you know, go eat breakfast at the school. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I'm at school with children. Then they're riding home with me and I'm not getting that time to decompress. And, you know, listen to whatever I want to listen to is so like they're talking, they're fighting, but I'm have to stop at the store. Um, and get something for the household needs and I have to go cook. And then that someone needs help with their homework. They're shoving papers in your face to sign. And my husband doesn't stop working until five or six. So constantly being on is a lot. And um, honestly, I, I'm just going to be so transparent. I am toying with the idea of them attending their homeschool even though I will be the hope, the biggest hypocrite in the world for doing that, because I feel like if I am driving over 25 minutes to pour into a community and I want, you know, better for those students and I'm pulling my kids away to go to their home school, I would only do that for the purpose of that balance for me selfishly so that I can not have to mad dash out the door and start my morning with chaos and, you know, have them following me around the school building at the end of the day when I'm trying to get things done and having to drag them to grocery stores when I need stuff. And then, you know, when I get home, I want nothing to do with those two big kids because I've seen them all day. 
and I'm um, toying with this idea in hopes to strengthen my relationship with my older two kids Mm -hmm. so that they will miss me more and I will miss them more and I will, um, you know, uh, hopefully prioritize home more and not be more inept to put my laptop in my lap and continue working. I want to be more um, in tune and intentional with my kids because they're eight and seven. I'm going to look up and they're going to be, you know, nine and 10. And then, you know, that's when, you know, as they get older, they're getting their information firsthand from their peers. And so I want their information and their questions to come to me. And I don't want them to say, well, I can't go ask her because she's always on her laptop or her head's always down doing work. I want to draw that fine line between work and home for myself um, and my kids so that when I leave work, the laptop's put away. I haven't seen my kids all day and I'm just more intentional and tuned on what's going on with them. And I don't pick that laptop up again until I go back the next day. So I am working on that with my therapist. Um, yay for therapy. I'm just trying to say like, you know, I really do believe that kids should be with you if you're trying to go do this, you know, influence your work in education in Title I schools, then it should be good enough for your kids. And it has been good enough for my kids. You know, my daughter's in third grade, my son's in first grade, but I want to um, make our relationship better because I want to be more in tune than draw that fine line and not have areas of gray where home merges into work and I'm not being as present with my kids. I hope that makes sense. And um that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on with my therapist and just not feeling guilty about that because my kids have had some wonderful educators here in Title I schools. But me, as I move over into leadership, I don't want to neglect my kids because they're with me at school. So I don't feel like I need to get off my laptop to be with them because I've seen them already. I want mm-hmm. to be more present as a mother mm-hmm. because time flies and time does not wait. I hear that. So. And yeah. this actually kind of leads to the, the last question. Um, you know, hopefully you can tie this in. I see you talk about therapy, but um, apart from that, my other, my last question to you is how do you practice self-care? My therapist, um, shout out to Dr. Adams. <laughs> I've been with her ever since 2013. Uh, we've been together mm-hmm. for 10 years and she's one of the most important people in my life. Um mm-hmm. She always gets on to me about practicing self-care. And for a while there, I was doing really good practicing self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, I purchased a membership to um, Massage Envy. And I had to go every month because the $79 came out of my account. And I had to make sure I set my appointment with my massage therapist, Michelle. And um, I carved out that time for myself every single month. Mm-hmm. and then. Um, just being fully transparent as you move into leadership you have to start dressing a different way mm-hmm. and you know as a teacher I would wear a dress and put you know black leggings under it because I'm getting on the floor with my kids I'm not the one to sit behind the desk you under the table doing your work with the clipboard I'm coming up under there too and mm-hmm. so as I moved into leadership I needed more dress pants I didn't have any dress pants and so I cut my membership off for Massage Envy and I started doing the Stitch Fix, um, the clothing subscription instead, where they were, you know, sending to the house um, the dress clothing for professional uh, people. And I stopped caring for myself as much and doing my self-care massages every month. And I'll be honest, that wasn't a good, that wasn't a good decision for me, even though the, the clothes are great. 
look cute, but um, I neglected my um, self-care. And I think that that has shown up health-wise. I am 33. I would consider myself to be a healthy person. I'm not dependent on any medicines or anything, right? Mm -hmm. So my blood were coming back funky it came back funky um last january a couple months ago for the first time i'm pre-diabetic um i you know cholesterol is elevated you know um was having panic attacks because of the stress you know leadership isn't easy and you're trying to prioritize all these things being a wife being a mother being a student you know working and making sure that you're growing these students and giving these students the best you have and it just was a lot. And I wasn't taking care of myself. And it showed up with panic attacks, um, having to go to the hospital with that because I wasn't doing self-care. Um, it showed up in my blood work, you know, elevated A1C and elevated cholesterol. And so now I'm being forced to, you know, be more active, going for walks around the neighborhood to bring that A1C down and the cholesterol, drinking more water. Um, to make sure that I'm in tune with my body because I was neglecting myself because I eliminated my self-care, my massage. You know, massage is good for your lymphatic system and it forces you to drink water to flush. And because I was too busy trying to look cute with my stitch fix and wasn't doing my self-care, it came back to bite me. And so now I'm reprioritizing my health, my physical like health, mm-hmm. drinking more water, moving my body more, um, being intentional with making sure that I'm putting something healthy into my body and not just pressing a button on DoorDash to get something quick. So that's a priority for me, self-care, because mm-hmm. neglecting self-care can be detrimental to you. Um, ever since I got my, my levels rechecked in April, things are trending back in the right direction, but that was a big wake-up call for me. Mm-hmm. I'm taking care of myself because if I don't take care of my, myself, nobody else will. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, the thing with um self self care, I'll just say this is not it's something that you have to be intentional about. Right? Yeah. It's, you can't just say it. You really have to be intentional. And there may be times where you do slip up, but you know, just 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 keep at it. Start up again. So I commend you for, um. For, for choosing you. So Paige, um, is there anything that you'd like the audience to know before we wrap up, such as if they wanted to donate time or donate books, how can they do so? Um, if anyone wants to donate time to a school, if you're in a Charlotte Mecklenburg school systems area in Charlotte or surrounding areas, um, I would say to go onto the CMS page and register to be a CMS volunteer. You'll have to go through a background um, check and then you'll be cleared to go into schools and volunteer. Um, just if you want to just read to students or just help teachers make bulletin boards. Or honestly, I have one partner who drops off donuts every Friday for teachers. And sometimes he'll drop off gift cards and tell the principal to raffle them off as like a morale booster. So if you can't donate your time, you can donate resources like that. You can donate money to the school and say, hey, pay for some kid's field trip who can't pay for their field trip. Or hey, when the Scholastic Book Fair comes and there's a single um, mother family or single father family or a family who's unable to buy books, put this toward their tab. You can donate physical time, financial time. Um, you can show up and help with carpool. You can come after school. 
and help just organize, put bulletin boards together, so much you can do. Um, as far as my school, if anyone's interested in partnering with me, please um, get my information. You can uh, message Ms. Uh, Frances Clark and just, you know, hopefully we can get in contact if you're passionate about serving students in impoverished areas, specifically black and brown students. If you wanna help with any STEM initiatives, please reach out to her and I'd be more than happy to partner with you. I'm always looking for more hands on deck to do the great work that we do. Awesome. Yeah. Paige, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Um, I have a feeling we will definitely connect. Um, cool. So uh, once again, thank you for being the guest today. And yeah. if anyone out there listening is interested in being a guest on a Pause Reset Brunch podcast, please feel free to email me at pauseresetbrunch at gmail.com or check out the website www.naturalanting.com. You can always send me a message on ig uh, natural inting llc once again i want to thank Paige so much and also just thank you for the passion that you have for um for our babies um thank you and i hope everyone has an awesome day on purpose Thanks, thank you Paige. so much thank you i really appreciate this this, this fed my soul